So first and foremost, I think the the addition of pant leggings is really when you start to see your heroes get watered down. Can't even muster the ability to play straight pants that one. Uh, which is a good argument for absolute rulers. Everybody is going to get behind me. They're going to love me, and my support numbers will go through. When you hang out with the hero, it doesn't go well for you. My grandfather yeah. took the cop and just slid it right through the bar. Okay. And that became the dominant way our family did it. Okay. And so, <laughs> in both of my marriages, they were treated to that. Okay, wait, hold on. Yeah, rage haiku. How do you imagine the rubber chicken point? My grandmother actually vacuumed in her pearls. Oh my god, it all makes sense. We've had the sexual revolution. It yeah. might have just been a Canadian standoff. We're gonna go back to 9 11. Dude, get over it. Mm-hmm. Nobody understands what the rights are supposed to be. Agra has no <laughs> business being that thick. <laughs> when the cultists win, we all win. of setting up a barbecue grill and being <laughs> able to cook over a fire as God intended outdoors on on property that I I claim. It's a big deal uh, to me. And I understand maybe that's white guy colonizer. I, I don't know. I don't know. It does sound very manifest destiny, yes. A little bit, a little bit. I'm, you know, and and I've got to work through those issues on my own. But that's kind of where I am right now. How about you? Oh, I'm Damien Harmony. I'm a Latin and drama teacher at a local high school up here in Northern California. Um, I don't have much in the way of updates other than I did get my kids to cook two different meals a couple weeks ago, and then they've managed to trick me into not asking them to do it again for two weeks straight. So. I am proud of two things this week. One, the fact that they have conned me for two straight weeks. And two, the meals they made were amazing. Now, having well, said that... Well, I saw that, one of them. Yeah? Which one did you see? One, I, well, the one, the one I remember is the one uh, your son cooked. Ah, the tomahawk steaks. Which, as, as a dedicated carnivore, I was looking at that like, where did he buy those? Ah, at a local Holy gourmet food shit. store. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, now, he, here, here's a thing I didn't know. Mm. That shit's expensive as hell. <laughs> yes, it is. I am pricing his recipes from now on before I say yes. <laughs> because 
the amount Tomahawk that steaks ain't cheap. No, they are not. Um, <laughs> I had no idea. Like, and You're I already had for them... a lot of labor because those bones have been Frenched. I don't know what that word means. That's um, it's it's the the, the my bone son cooked been, the meat, not me. Separated. Yeah, uh-huh. I know the, the bone is the bone has been separated from the meat, and the the tendons and all the tissue have been scraped off of it to create that nice clean oh. bone. So, like when you have, uh, I'm going to start chops. using that in discussion of like what happens to people in industrial accidents. <laughs> that's that's horrible, but not entirely inappropriate. Right? Yeah. Oh man, he got uh, Frenched. I mean, it's, I mean, from it's from the knee down, he got Frenched. Yeah, it's wildly inappropriate, but but true. Yeah. Like, actually, technically not wrong. Yeah. It is technically correct, which is the best kind of correct. <laughs> um, but yeah, no. So you're you're paying for number one. You're paying for usually the steaks that are that are on the bone like that are are you know high grade. They're ribeye. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and ribeye, which is an expensive cut anyway. Even if mm-hmm. you get a cheap ribeye, it's not a cheap ribeye. I know. I looked. I was like, shit, well, at least these aren't ribeye prices. And then I looked, I'm like, what the fuck? I guess we're not buying milk this month. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, but it tasted good, didn't oh, it? Oh, it was great. And it was, you know, we were accidentally kosher. So, you know, it worked yeah. well. Oh, hey, there you go. Yeah. Perfect. Actually, I don't know um, that we were because we used um, creamed roe in the mashed potatoes. Uh, Well, no. Because the thing is, the the meat itself, and mm-hmm. we can we can check with you know friend of the show Tessa about this, but yeah, the please. meat itself was not cooked in the milk. That is true. That is so very true. So you're okay. Okay. I cool. think. All right. I think. I could uh, they were wrong. on the same plate though, like the the meat and the mashed potatoes, which had heavy cream oh, as well as I don't know. as creamed roe, and creamed roe yeah. is is fish eggs. So see, creamed roe by itself might not be a viol- might not be trife, but oh, okay, I don't know. Yeah, friend of the show, I'd Tessa, to, help yeah. us out. Yeah, let us know. Yeah. Um. I mean, anyway, you know, she's she's a vegan, so like, you know, to her, the whole thing's an abomination anyway. <laughs> but she knows yeah. rules really well. Like she does. Yeah. She does know. She she knows. She knows the those those rules yeah. better than anybody else I know. Um. So yeah. Anyway, but yeah, no, I was I was very impressed by your son doing that cooking, and I remember so looking was at he. that one going, "Oh, I'm sure." Oh, you saw the picture. He's so proud. It oh was yeah, wonderful. yeah, yeah. But I, but I I do remember looking at that going like, "How much did Damien drop on that dinner?" More than I thought I should have. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I yeah, it was a good experience for him. Like he, you know, he he learned. Yeah. You know, and he knows how to cook meat and, and Julia knows how to cook meat and, you know, they both, they both have made some fantastic dishes. So, and this week we are, we're making smoothies for breakfast on Sunday. He's really been wanting to do that. So, so, cool. yeah. Anyway, so, uh, last we talked, um, I had given most of the plot of the 2005 Romero film, um, which is, uh, Starred, Land of the Dead. Well, yes, but I was, I was going to say it starred Dennis Hopper. Oh. Um, yeah. And uh, one of the things I did not Because it was 2005, and how could it not? Right, right. Um, which uh, one of the people I didn't mention that it, it starred was John Leguizamo. Um, 
and uh, he's he's going to figure in big to my analysis of it uh, at this point. Really? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. So, I'm so a big, I'm a big fan of him. Good, good. Yeah, and so in Land of the Dead, uh, like we said, it's set in Pittsburgh, so we're still keeping to Pennsylvania. Um, it's uh, there's a mall preceding a high rise. The high rise is where the really really rich live. It's a semi feudal society run by a guy named Kaufman. Uh, that is, of course, uh, Dennis Hopper. Um, and uh, it's very much the the rich are safe, the poor are not. So, I don't know. Like, he was talking about the times then. He was talking about the times now. Like, it, is it really satire well, okay. when you're just, like, calling out what actually exists? Well, yeah, it is satire okay. if you're calling out what actually exists. It's just the way in which you're doing it. Yeah. Um, you know, satire is satire is about, you know, tone and, and okay. intent really as much as anything else. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think what I, what I find, so 2004. Okay. Cause I'm the movie came think, out in 05, but 2004. Okay. Okay. Well in, in 2004, 2005. So we're talking about the end of Bush, the first, um, first term, first, first term. Yep. For for Bush too, and second term he uh, wins by lesser. saying, you know, sure I screwed up the war on terror, but do you want to change horses midstream? Besides, that guy's not a war hero like me. What the fuck? Uh, yeah. Okay. So <laughs> and it worked. Yeah, it did. <laughs> it did. Um. So so I'm trying to think economically, mm-hmm. what we had going on in the country in '04 into '05. Well, the vice president had deep ties with corporations that ruined large swaths of the economy's, uh, the country's economic power, as well as defense well, yeah. contractors that had ruined large swaths of other countries. So that's okay, going on I'm economically. Talking, okay, but but I'm talking boom bust cycle. Oh, like, oh, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm talking. I'm, I'm not. I'm not even getting that. That. Oh, we're uh, headed toward analytical. a big fucking boom. Like this is the beginning of the bubble blowing up. Yeah, okay. Like, it, so, it is getting really big. It is noticeably big. Okay. Yeah. So, this is the tail end. Well, this is this is the after effect, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, now, we're now several years on from the Clinton presidency mm-hmm. and the growth during the Clinton presidency. But all of that growth during the Clinton presidency, all those jo- all that job growth that mm-hmm. we saw, was low wage, you know, Walmart greeter, right? Kind of kind of positions, kind of cooking the books a bit, kind of cooking the books yeah. more than a little. More people are working, but less the 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 purchasing power keeps dropping. Yes, there yeah. we go. That's yeah. that's the kind of point that I'm looking for. Here. And Glass Steagall so, is starting to get dismantled. That starts oh, yeah. under Clinton. That's true because oh, of the yeah. contract with America. Because like, of, yeah, because of, because of <laughs> it's it's Gingrich. not his fault because exactly. Of new fucking but, Gingrich. Yeah, um, yeah. So so yeah, we we have we have huge corporate deregulation going on, mm-hmm. and we are seeing, but maybe not, or or it's going on, and it like. Trying to figure out how to say it. I want to say like we're seeing, but we're not yet really noticing the widening gulf between the one percent and everybody else. Well, I would say that uh, 
John Edwards, for all of his faults and foibles, called it out a lot earlier than most people. Because in the Democratic primary, he had said, there are two Americas. I remember that, yes. And he was gaining a lot of traction with that. Because oh, he was. There, was, there was a very large swath of our population that recognized that and had not bought completely into identity politics um, of the right yet. yet. Um, but yes, you, you are seeing a, a huge widening of that gulf, like you said. Um, I think you're also seeing... Um, okay, so when I bought my house... Um, it's the worst possible time to buy a house. Maybe not the worst <laughs> month on record, but definitely the worst year. It was 2007. Pretty, oh, shit. And 2007 yeah. is okay. unique because in that year, uh, certainly in the fall of 2007 or late summer, prices were plummeting and people were not actually letting go of their higher prices. So values were, were falling through the floor, but prices weren't falling. Yeah. Because people were still holding on to hope. And and I, I always liken it to if Mr. Fantastic was afraid of being on a roller coaster, he would grab the bar at the very top as the whole thing goes down and his arm would just stretch. And I think that's, that's what's going on. a surprisingly good analogy. Yeah. And I think that's what's going on economically in 2005 especially. It's you know it's getting bad. You don't want to admit it. And you don't have to admit it just yet. Yeah, the reality has not become unavoidable. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. So And and so, and so mm-hmm. what I'm, what I'm going to say is on a subconscious level, mm-hmm. that ties in really strongly to this idea of – you know, we have we have the zombies, Big Daddy mm-hmm. and the zombies mm-hmm. who are the working poor. Yes. We have the protagonists of the story who are the middle class. Mm-hmm. The struggling, mm-hmm. starting to really struggle middle class. Yeah. And then we have Kaufman and his ilk who are the one percent. Well, let's bring race into it now, too. Okay. Because Big Daddy is black and working poor. And John Leguizamo's in it. And I'm going to talk about him for a bit. So, okay. But yeah, you're absolutely right. I really like the idea of the struggling middle class. I had not thought of that. But he's absolutely a person who is working really hard to enrich and empower the rich. Um, And then he's going to leave uh, on his own. And uh, he's going to, you know, kind of disengage to move to the suburbs if you will um and so the the movie is is delightfully delightfully and savagely subversive the main antagonist is not a zombie it's kaufman kaufman is everything that marx warned us about in das kapital (laughs) dennis hopper plays a great heavy he really does he really does and then you combine that with the lack of imagination that we came to think of as quaint uh although deadly to others in george bush um he even said at one point quote we don't negotiate with terrorists i'm I'm talking about kaufman not not bush um oh when he's dealing with a heavily ethnicized character named Cholo, played by John Leguizamo. Um, mm. Yeah. Okay. You, you don't want to think of that as being 2005, but it was. Um, mm. Although it is satire. 
it is this is true broad brushing this is true you know? yeah so, commedia dell'arte yeah, yeah. so right. when when cholo tries to hold him up for money having been rejected in his bid to live amongst the rich uh that's when kaufman says that so just to give you a little bit of background you got the middle class um you know your, your main protagonist whose name i never wrote down and i've forgotten um, but, uh, he is the one who, uh, builds, um, the, the, the train slash bus slash, uh, weapons platform, um, snowplow, uh, and, uh, he ends up working with Cholo. Cholo is on the bottom, uh, of the rung. Um, he is a, a hustler. He is a, a violent trying to get ahead and his dream is to live in the high rise. Now again, this is a dystopic Pittsburgh, which is about ten percent worse than Pittsburgh. Yeah, um, I was going to say <laughs> dystopic Pittsburgh. Is that that's kind of redundant? Yeah, like, like a dystopic on. Pittsburgh. I mean, it's you know, which is essentially a Philadelphia. Yeah, um, I was going to say like. So, but okay, this so is the Pittsburgh, so, where they throw batteries at Santa Claus as opposed to Philly, right? Uh, <laughs> so, Cholo is this uh, bottom dwelling character whose dream is to live like the guy who still lives in the same shitty spot, just higher up. Um, whereas the middle class ruling in hell, yeah. Whereas the middle class, he wants to get the fuck out of there and just start his own world, right? And there's a very yeah. difference in paradigms there. Um, so that's the character Cholo. Um, Kaufman says, you know, we don't negotiate with terrorists, um, when Cholo is trying, so Cholo is, is trying to make a lot of money so that he can move in because you have to buy your way in. Um, and there's nothing not racist about Kaufman's character either. He refuses to let Cholo live in the high rise and it's not because he doesn't bring enough money because he has saved up and hustled enough money. But it's because Cholo's brown. Um, meanwhile, Kaufman has three soldiers. A tough Latino named uh, Manolette, or Manolette. Uh, a wisecracking female soldier named Motown, although she's a white woman. Um, and she breaks the stereotype as a result. And a hulking ethnic Samoa soldier, Samoan soldier named Pillsbury. Which, honestly, oh. these... Okay. These these three feel more like heels from Glow than a movie in two thousand five. <laughs> nice. Which, nice. to be honest, that's also kind of the point, right? I mean, yeah. they're cartoonishly evil bad guy with cartoonish thugs. Uh, Cholo later responds when reflecting on the fact that Kaufman has not allowed him to live out his dream of moving in with the rich white people. Um, and he says he's quote going to quote do a jihad on his ass. Now, now that's that's an interesting in two thousand five note, yeah, as it were, yeah, two thousand five, huh? So you know it, yeah. huh? It's interesting mm-hmm. that our culture, mm-hmm. the the Western white you know majority culture yep has taken such a different uh uh has, has attached such a different kind of connotation 
mm-hmm. to the words crusade and jihad. Yes. Because literally they mean almost, I mean, like, like in terms of intent in their original source material, they mean in many ways the same thing. Mm-hmm. Although jihad literally just means struggle, if I'm right. remembering correctly. Yeah. And and there is ample evidence for jihad taking many forms. Yes. From the individual struggle against one's own sinful nature mm-hmm. to literal holy war. Mm-hmm. Whereas a crusade, no, sorry, son, that's that is one thing. That is one thing. Yeah. That is that is I am putting I am putting this this red cross on my chest and I am traveling to a foreign land to to fight people who have a different faith than mine. Mm-hmm. Is like that's it. Like there you go, we're done. We can we can dress that up and we can add that you know, we can say, well, you know, I'm engaging in a crusade, you know, the government is crusading against right this social ill yeah we can totally do that but the root of it is literally i'm gonna go beat other people over the head yes the cause of religion yeah you know and and i find it remarkable meaning worthy of remark not like surprising but i i find it i find it worth noting here that uh romero has his character use the word jihad because in American parlance, Mm -hmm. jihad strictly means um, I'm going to go to the mattresses, 100% holy war. I'm going to commit assassinative violence on him. Yeah. Yes. Yes. There you go. When, when, like in point of practical facts, Mm -hmm. he probably should have said, I'm a crusade on him. Funny to that. Get to, to get the real source meaning. Yeah. Like, well, jihad, and, in 2005, and, jihad took on a connotation of definite violence, whereas yeah. crusade takes on a definition uh, of travel and then battle. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to argue that in 2005, crusade didn't even necessarily have to involve... Travel crusade simply meant a righteous struggle within within our parlance within within majority white America Christian parlance. You could use the word crusade for any kind of righteous endeavor. Uh, it was usually and get against, away with it. It was against an other though, and it the other was never immediate. The other was always remote. Okay. I, I'm I'm gonna say that travel is part right. of it because you use the words going on with crusade. You don't use the words going oh, okay. on. Well, with okay. I yeah. I was I was thinking of the use of crusade as a noun. Right. Oh no, I'm saying these are both as verbs. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I yeah I could see that. But even going on a crusade, but, I mean that's still yeah going on a crusade. Yeah, yeah. There's a certain amount of yeah. There's some travel but, involved. There's there's you yeah. know what there is. There is a I'm fighting them over here, so I don't have to fight them over 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 here thing. Or mm. fighting them over there kind of thing. Like there's over there, so I don't have to fight yeah. them over here. Yeah. There is a I'm going I'm that. going into the lion's den aspect of it. I'm going ultramare. Mm-hmm. Now there's there's a term we don't hear enough. 
I, I want to bring back the idea of Outremer. You're welcome to. That's what I want to do. You know, you know. You do it while you're barbecuing outside. It'll be good. <laughs> so, just, just, That's a really nice way of saying fuck you. Yeah. Thank you for being so so polite about it. Just tell me when you know you got the barbecue done, and I'll come over. Um, so okay. there's a website called Desist Film, um, and there's an author on there called Adrian Martin, and he analyzed the heck out of this movie, and I got his permission to borrow liberally and primarily from his to inform mine. Okay. Cool so here's point. what Martin says. He says, "Quote." In his book, Zombies, Lilliputians, and Sadists, The Power of the Living Dead and the Future of Australia, uh, and then he gives the biographical or the bibliographic information, the author, Frankel, uh, distinguishes three new classes that go far beyond the old social divisions of race, gender, or wealth. His analysis has a general applicability to all contemporary Western countries. Zombies are those who have been ground down by the system, by the mindlessness of work, made passive by consumerism, they are still alive and potentially capable of action, but out of touch with the times, nostalgic, hitching their prevailing life force to perverse religious fundamentalisms or resurgent racisms. Lilliputians are those who think big and spout radical rhetoric. Quote, or, and then in parentheses he says, think of the Irish radical in Land of the Dead who vows to, quote, turn this place into what we always wanted it to be. End parentheses. Uh, but never succeed in changing anything. Perhaps they even make the status quo worse. Sadists, the true living dead, in which group Frankel includes ex-president Bush and Australian Prime Minister John Howard, are those who find a way to wield power over others, whether through the old established paths of privilege or acts of sheer brute strength. Frankel's sociological diagram is virtually identical with the scenario of Land of the Dead, except that, instead of moving backwards into the past, Romero's zombies turn toward revolution. End quote. Hmm. Huh. Yeah. That's a very Antipodean uh, kind of slant on it. I don't know that word. Antipodes, uh, in the Antipodes are the bottom half of the globe. Oh, okay. So Australia was considered part of the Antipodes. Right, right. Um, I'm I'm kind of floored by the by the way that um, <laughs> that that whole analysis hinges on on a very Australian worldview. I just I'm I got I got kind of kind of caught up in in like oh wow he's referencing major mm-hmm. like. I mean, I remember that name because he was prime minister of Australia. But like, how much in the United States do we hear about that? You mean um, Howard? 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 John Major Sorry, was a British John. guy. Was British? Yeah. yeah. See, that just proves my point. <laughs> um, but but the fact that he references Howard, whose name honestly I did recognize, even though I hadn't conflated it with a British prime minister. But that, huh? Okay. I, I see the argument very clearly mm-hmm. with Bush and Howard falling in that in that last category. I totally, totally see that, totally buy that. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's a very interesting right-left dynamic between zombies and Lilliputians. I think it's is more... That, is that just me? 
I think so. I think uh, I think it's class consciousness because the zombies are okay. clearly the proletariat, and the Lilliputians are um, petty bourgeoisie. Yeah. Okay. Like, Speaking as a member of the petty bourgeoisie, I yeah. feel like I can call myself petty without without. Sure. Like, I'm not punching down. Sure. But the uh, the the fact that he says that I might even be punching up. I don't know if I count as bourgeois. But anyway, sorry. He says that the okay. Lilliputians are those who think big and spout radical rhetoric, but never succeed in changing anything. Uh, and perhaps okay. they even make the status quo worse. I mean, that's yeah. Oh, so I see where you're coming from as far as the spectrumy stuff because yeah. in many ways you could see the the bottom group being leftists the lilliputians being liberals and then the others being conservatives but i yeah. think it's more class consciousness okay yeah That's, so it's a marx it's i think it's a marxist, it's a marxist model analysis. yeah i think it absolutely yeah. is i mean solidly marxist yeah. model and what's especially interesting <sighs> about Romero's zombies is that he never sets out to codify the genre, right? He uses them to make points about, uh, points in his movies about what's going on at the time. Yeah. Well, he's, he's not, the thing is there are, I'm going to, I'm going to make a broad statement here sure. about storytellers. There are, I, I, I think at the end of the day, there are basically two kinds of storytellers. Mm-hmm. There are storytellers who set out, to just tell a story. Sure. And the anvils they drop wind up being dropped because of the story they are telling. Mm-hmm. And the pattern on the wallpaper. Mm-hmm. And then there are, for lack of a better word, and I don't mean this to be judgmental, ideologues mm-hmm. who have an agenda and are telling a story to 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 express their agenda. Sure. And I think Romero, we we we've established Romero started out as the first type, mm-hmm. and I think in order to be really trying to codify anything, mm-hmm. I think there's a certain amount of the second type that you kind of need to have going on. Yeah, because there's a level of meta if you're if you're actually going to be like no 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 no. I want to, to codify this symbol. I want to have this be a symbol for this other thing. Right. You kind of have to, you have to have an angle you're working toward. Yeah. And you have to be conscious you know of it, I, mean? I think is the real, and you have real to be aware there. of yeah. it so that, yeah, there's, there's a level of meta fiction mm-hmm. involved mm-hmm. in that. And, and Romero started out Started out, he mm-hmm. didn't, he didn't give a shit about that. He had a story he wanted to tell, and this is right. how he wanted to do it. Right. And as you established in our first episode, he kind of stumbled. Or second episode, he stumbled backward into it. Yes. I think by the time we're now talking about this film, though, mm-hmm. I think this, this is one of the ways in which I feel like this is a massive paradigm shift. Mm. Because he's really clearly trying to make a meta point from step one. Like this, this story is not just about our protagonist trying to figure out how to survive in this circumstance. It is, no, no, I have constructed this entire world mm-hmm. because I'm looking at the world around me and I want to point out to everybody how fucking ridiculous it is. 
Now, do you think that that's... Uh, I, I'm going to push back a little bit. Do you think that it's okay. that or that he has... He is evolving himself and as a result, his views on it re- evolve and um, he has been writing in this world for so long that it has evolved. And so in many ways, he's just kind of continuing to explore and this is the natural consequence of that. I'm going to say it's a little column A and a little column B. Okay, fair enough. I don't I don't feel like the two are necessarily opposed. Okay. Yeah. I think I I I like I remember when this movie came out mm-hmm. reading commentary and reviews on it. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel like the way this story was put together would be something you could you could fall backward into even like right. maybe partially. But right. I, I don't I don't like you know, the first Night of the Living Dead he fell backward into his message because he wound up casting the best actor who wound up being a black man. Mm-hmm. And, and all the symbolism then just like imposed itself on the story he was You're right to tell. right it grew organically you know, from it whereas in the other yeah. ones those were deliberate choices he took them to a mall he he had them underground he yeah yeah, yeah those you, are deliberate you choices can't, and you yeah. will never convince me that big daddy was not cast intentionally oh he very much was actor. yeah so you know, so i i think i think we're seeing a very significant paradigm shift mm-hmm. in 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 where Romero is coming from as a storyteller at the same time as we're seeing a paradigm shift in what the movie is really about mm-hmm. you know it's not it's still I'm going to say this. It's still not a horror movie. It's a survival action film. You Hmm. know? Yeah. No, I think, I think you've got something there. I think he's, he's responding to, and yet at the same time hemmed in by the resident evil success. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to take that a step farther. I don't think he's hemmed in by the resident evil success. I think he looked at what was going on with resident evil and was like, you know what? This is a different kind of story I can tell. And I can say different shit in this paradigm. I don't know, because he did come out and talk about the Snyder Cut of, of you know, uh, Dawn. And said that, you know, it, it kind of fell apart. It, it didn't. It was more action than it was character. Okay, so then yes, he goes and he makes that this. Necessarily... Okay, Yes. But that doesn't necessarily mean that he thought it did that because it was an action movie. I think he was just critiquing another another no, he called director's, it a, another writer's work. He said it felt very much like a video game, right? He he called it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yes. Still st- so you can you can look at something and say this feels an awful lot like a video game. Mm-hmm rather than a story and you can still do something then in the, and I, I genuinely think he looked at that and went, you know what? I can take this paradigm and I can do something thinkier with it and, and still be in that genre. 
Yeah, I guess I'm just I'm sticking on on the quote where he said, "I thought it was a good action film," which to me is a distinction. Um, and then he said, okay. "You know, the first fifteen twenty minutes were terrific, but it sort of lost its reason for being." Okay. Whereas so, I, so he very much do you, do did, you think yeah. this isn't an action film that he made? No, I think he made an action film. I think he now, okay. in order to be able to make a successful zombie movie, I think Romero does have to dip into action, whether he wanted to or not. I don't think he's looking to explore it so much as this is now the paradigm. In other words, he is no longer the genre creator. He is another artist within the genre. And so he okay. has to fit within right. these rules, too. Okay, I um, can... All right. Yeah, I, I could see that. I, I think I think we're kind of we're kind of arguing across each other. Yeah. I'm mostly responding to the the idea that as an action film, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when, when if it, from from what you said in our prior episode talking about, you know, they've they've become, you know, mindless entertainment. Right. I think this is Romero taking an action film and being like, yes, it's entertainment, but it ain't fucking mindless. Mm. Yeah, like, I could, I, I definitely have, see I have, that. Cause I mean, he's got I zombies have, creating a revolution. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he, he very clearly has something to say. And the paradigm mm-hmm. is now a hundred percent different. Yeah. From, it's, it's within the paradigm of the earlier films. Yeah. However, unlike, um, uh, the the redemption story cut <laughs> of of day of the dead um or dawn of the dead mm-hmm. um this one this one still has his very cynical very nihilistic uh kind of kind of take well nihilistic might be overstating it but but his his very his his much more cynical view of things mm-hmm. um Interestingly, it does still end with the main protagonist, you know, escaping off into the wilderness with a bunch of people to, you know, found their own better society. Right. Which, you know, is a huge departure from everything we've seen from Romero up to this point. Mm-hmm. Um, Which I, you know, I do want to get to that um, because okay. I think that in many ways that's Romero saying goodbye to the, the zombie genre in general that's that's him leaving it you know that's 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 to me riding off into the sunset yeah in some ways i mean it 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 feels to me very similar in in energy not in tone not in message but it feels very similar to the very opening line uh that max von saito gets to say in episode seven where he says this will go a long way toward making things right and he puts the thing in poe's hand that's the director saying, sorry about the prequels. <laughs> like, this will go a long way toward making things right. <laughs> you know, I, I think this this has that same vibe to me of like, well, I'm fucking out of here, man. You know? Okay. All right. But, uh, you know, so uh, Romero lets his zombies evolve in his world. And, and Martin goes on to say, quote, Every key moment of the plot relates to some way in which these monsters become more conscious, more communicative, and more adaptive, no, ma- no longer simply the functional static closed beings defined as either stenchers, for how they smell, or walkers, for the sole action for which they are capable. 
And and this means that the veil between humans and zombies is also more permeable. Yeah, I was going to say they become more human. Uh-huh. Uh, and the humans are becoming more, like, you know, they're devolving. Monstrous. Yeah. And Martin goes on. He says, Charlie, uh, with his facial disfigurement and mental disability, is easily mistaken for a zombie when we first encounter him. He's a character that we run into early on. And Cholo mm-hmm. ultimately comes to swap his upward social mobility, his hopeless, deluded dream to live like a rich, protected citizen for a more radical desire to join the zombie class and, quote, see how the other half lives. The blurring of the zombie and the human species leads to a key scene that would be literally impossible, unthinkable in Romero's previous zombie films. Even though Cholo has already transformed fully into a zombie when he confronts Kaufman in the underground park car park, he still has the guided intelligence to take his political revenge against the principal embodiment of capitalist evil. And Big Daddy has become smart enough not only to repeat his old gestures of pumping oil into the car, but also more decisively rolling in a lighted canister to ignite the murderous flame, a superb moment of narrative, economy, and resolution. I love Martin's writing. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 well put together. Yeah, I gotta say, um, I've also got to say, very clearly a Marxist analysis. Yes, like, <laughs> oh, hundred percent. Where's the class conflict? Where's the proletariat yeah. empowerment? Oh, okay, there. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, hey, there you go. Yep. Oh, hundred um, percent true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and like. As, as a paradigm, that's a paradigm you can use. We're yeah. there. Um, and for the story that we're, we're analyzing, it's not a bad one. No. <laughs> Especially considering how, how subversive and, and satirical Romero gets. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think, I think the, the idea of the permeability. Mm-hmm. Of the dividing line between human and zombie is an interesting development in that story. And what I think is more interesting about it is we don't see that same kind of idea going forward after that. Yeah, it's true. Like Big Daddy, Big Daddy gets gets really close to being like fully intelligent. It is it is in his, or fully human in his level of intelligence and his mm-hmm. planning and foresight and leadership and whatever all. Oh yeah. And then and then Romero has his all right later you know moment. Right. You know and that's what this film is. So the bourgeoisie then, can afford to leave. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. And then and then after that we go right back to mm-hmm. zombies being mindless. And I think this is kind of the high water mark of zombie intelligence, for lack of a better word, or zombie zombie humanity. And I think it's it's a very interesting statement about the story mm-hmm. that Romero was telling here. You know, because clearly I, I don't I don't think you can tell this kind of story without there being a message behind it. Right. Like I'm, I'm going to take this, what, what has become now a stock monster, mm-hmm. which by the way, I codified. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm the one responsible for codifying 
you know, 80% of the behavior of this, of this monster. Sure. And now I'm going to fuck with that codification. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to walk away. What? And everybody else after that goes right back to the codification. Well, we're gonna we're gonna get into why that happens okay. ultimately as well. Okay. Um, but in 2005, if you really think about it, uh, in this movie especially, but in 2005, this makes a lot of sense. Humans and zombies aren't looking to reunite at all. No. Nobody's looking for a cure. But the world in okay. 2005 is such that a zombie movie now has the zombies wanting their own place to live and the humans falling upon each other in their continued adherence to avarice and capitalism. Okay. Um, so. um, the wheels are turning in my head. I'm trying to do the math of what the what the obvious parallel there is. That we, we were accepting an endless war. The Western, the Western world, Okay, so is so is this a a the the hoi polloi are accepting an endless war? Hmm. The middle class is because um, they already have homes. Okay. Okay. Boomers. Okay. okay. Yeah. Fair. I'm I'm wondering if it's if it's that or if it's a first world versus second world third world mm. dynamic. I don't know. Like I mean, Romero who, Romero tended you know, to make statements about the United States in his movies. Um, yeah. Okay. You know, they the, were fairly the internal. Majority American, yeah. cult, dominant American culture. Yeah. Okay. Now it's really important. Right, fair enough. Yeah. Uh, now it's 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 really uh, important to note this next part because this next paragraph really struck me, and I think it deserves more fleshing out. So here's what Martin says. Uh, he says, "Quote." The narrative shape of Land of the Dead demands particularly close attention. The film alternates in a masterful fashion three threads or trajectories. That of the zombies led by Big Daddy toward the Fiddler's Green Tower. That's the high rise. That of Riley and his team. There's your petite bourgeoisie guy. And that of Cholo. Each of these trajectories takes us through and into many different social milieu in different ways and in different directions. While Riley changes from being a man of the law to a hired hand and finally into a visionary individualist searching for virgin land at the head of a truly Hawksian team, a prostitute, a disabled man, uh, Cholo is the secret agent who, quote, takes out the trash of the system, travels up the social hierarchy, and is then brutally rejected from it, hence left to take his revenge as a zombie, dying in the process. When all three trajectories are combined in the film's unfolding pattern, the logic of the entire social structure is laid bare as surely and as systematically as Fritz Lang did in the movie M in 1931. Boy, going back with the deep cut to Fritz Lang. Oh, and, um, and I decided to wow. go with him on that, too. <laughs> Uh, so I'm going to talk a bit about, uh, M, but first let's, let's like take a look at that for a second. So as we were saying, right, you've got Riley and his team. That's the white middle class. They can always opt out of the troubles. And, and Riley is for lack of a better term, he is kind of our main protagonist. Yes. If I'm. Yes. You know, like and, we're and following he was Riley. he was a man of the law. He was upholding yeah. the system with his efforts. 
until yeah. he decided, I just want to check out. Yeah. Why has everything got to be so political? <laughs> Cholo that, that's is a really, that's a really, really cynical take on what I was about to say, which was, oh. <laughs> you know, that, 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 that is the default, uh, American protagonist <laughs> is yes. as a member of the petit bourgeoisie mm-hmm. because that's as, as a nation, that's how our founders identified our political founders yep. identify. That's how like that, that is, that is the, the class and the figure that, that defaults to form our cultural yep. Uh, yep. lexicon. Yeah. And so of course that's our that's our protagonist. Um but then you've also got because, I mean, Oh, go on. Because I mean, you know, you don't want to be, you know, trying to identify with one of the poor people. Like, I mean, come on. Right. And let's 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 look at that real yeah. quick. You've got Okay. both both sets of the poors are people of color. <laughs> okay. Um Yeah. One set of the poors are trying to create their own success in this system. They're and they recognize that to do so you need to upend it. The yeah. other is represented by Cholo, who is not as dark as the first group, which I find interesting. Uh, and he is simply trying to imitate the trappings of the super powerful. Well, he's trying to buy his way, literally trying to buy his way in. Yeah, he's buying you know, into the what, system. What find... He's not looking to, to change it, to overthrow it, to burn it down. He is trying to succeed within it. He just wants, he just wants to get to the top. Right. Now, what's like, yeah. really fascinating here to me is that you've, you've heard, like, if you, if you divide the, the, the American system into uh, five quintiles, that... Whatever class you are, you are aware of the one that's immediately below you and the ones immediately above you, but you have no concept how anybody further than that distance exists. So like you and I, we're semi-middle class, um, sometimes just barely third hanging quintile? on. quintile? Yeah, well, so let's third? say that we're in the third quintile. Okay, so okay. The, 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 I would say that we're in the first quintile, or we're in the second quintile. But, um, so, okay. but either I'd, way, I'd argue above us are the rich okay. below okay. us are the working poor. Okay. We don't really have a concept what's below that. No. We also have no clue what life is like for the ultra rich. No. M- more importantly, the ultra rich have no idea what our lives are like. As evidenced by any time we hear them talk, um, <laughs> and the the <laughs> yeah the ultra poor yeah. have no idea what it's like to be in the middle class. Yeah, I for anybody for anybody who is struggling with homelessness, because mm-hmm. I mean you know I'm I'm thinking of if we're really talking about what first quintile would look like, like mm-hmm. let's let's talk about the truly no seriously destitute 
like anybody who's been stuck in that position long enough is going to have a very hard time mm-hmm. comprehending a life where, you know, I've had a really rough day. Let's get a pizza. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that was my day today for mm-hmm. reasons we won't get into. I had a rough day and I didn't want to cook dinner. So talking to talking to my wife, I was like, how do you feel about pizza tonight? Cause like I'm worn out. I just don't want to cook. Yep. Like, Oh my God, the level of insulation. Yeah. Privilege, obviously. But, yeah. But the, the level of cushion mm-hmm. that's involved in making that decision. Oh yeah. Like, you know, um, is is hard for them to understand. Meanwhile, meanwhile mm-hmm. you know, on the other end of the spectrum, there are people who never do their own cooking one way or another. Oh, let's and go even idea, further than that. There are people who who don't understand the cost of their own fuel for their pinstriped private jet. It's just always fueled up. Fuck you. <laughs> but yes, that like like you know, talk about a one upper, but yes, no, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's like the the point five percent. But yeah. yes, no, yeah. you're totally not wrong. I, I don't remember where it was I saw it. Well, it was on Facebook, but I don't remember the post specifically. Somebody talking about the not just the gap between the, you know, top 30% and the top 1%. Mm-hmm. But the difference in our in in our economy here in the United States right now in 2021 oh, yeah. between the top 5% and the top 0.5% mm-hmm. is so huge. It's, yeah, incredibly stark. You know, like like I I feel like I feel like a system of quintiles is not enough no yeah not anymore not anymore because (laughs) it it makes them seem like they are equal parts it's it's a much worse much worse Mm -hmm. hey uh so let's talk about m for a second Uh, peter laurie movie okay Uh, fritz lang uh brings in quite a confluence of groups that have no business working together in this movie despite their radical similarities uh someone is murdering children in a german town okay this movie came out in 31 The police are doing everything they can to solve the case, but after several months, several murders, and exhausting work, they still have no clues. And their methods of trying to find the murderer start to adversely affect the local criminal community. Due to this, the local organized crime syndicate takes it upon themselves to find the murderer and mete out punishment because these cops are getting in our way. So let's just solve it for them. And in many ways, it's indicative of the type of crime novels that were popular in the 30s. Uh, But more importantly, you have two groups working together toward the same goal, but toward very different ends. And that part's really important. Same goal, different ends. Their collaboration, which is strained by this difference in the mission end game, it nearly lets the murderer get away as a result. And the police are shown as inept, the criminals as self-interested, and the people in the middle suffer the loss of their children. Uh, only the street poor seem to be doing things effectively and for reasons other than their own profits. Hmm. Okay. So that's M, right? And that is Cholo helping Riley 
um, and also uh, Big Daddy helping Cholo, helping Riley, all of whom are fighting against Kaufman. But, you know, so same goal, very different ends. Riley wants the fuck out of there. Cholo wants revenge. Big Daddy wants revolution. And we're going to quibble on which part is the goal and which part is the end. The, the end, goal yeah. each of them is, like, Riley wants to get out. Cholo wants to get into the building. Oh, and, to me, well, that's the end. To me, that's um, the end. It's, because, it's, just, okay, yeah. it's, just, it's just semantics. But okay. anyway, yeah, yeah. No, I see what you're saying, though. Yeah, because the goal is the thing that they're all working toward, but the ends is the reason why they're working toward those things. You know, the, the thing okay, that they sure. get as a result of that okay. goal happening. All right, that makes sense. So, right. so we, we all, yeah. all want to overthrow Kaufman. Yes. Right. But the reason we want to overthrow Kaufman are different. is different. And okay. that is okay. going to cause us to get in each other's way. Yes. Yeah. Much like the crooks want to catch the killer in order to get the cops out of their way. The cops yep. want to catch the killer because, well, you know, it's, it's job. our job. It's what we got to do. Right. And the poor people living in Berlin in 1931 want to catch the killer because it's my fucking kid. Right. And the, no. the homeless folks are the only ones that are actually going to do the job. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so in 2005, time held a lot less meaning for people. We were in an unending war with no clear sign of success anymore. Uh, also, we were in Iraq. Uh, and Romero titles were specifically switched from referencing time, which lost some meaning when it came to social progress or change, to referencing space which to me signals defeat. Night of the Living Dead, night is a scary time. Makes sense. Dawn of the Dead sounds like they're ascendant, but also a rising menace. Day of the Dead, it's still going to end. Land of the Dead, oh shit, they've outrun us. Okay, all right, I'll buy that. The Undead in each Romero film. Yeah, what's that? No, Oh. Go ahead. The undead in each Romero film represent a menace that is external to humanity, threatening us and showing our fault lines. They also come to embody very specific cultural threats, both in how they look, how they attack, and how they endanger. In Night of the Living Dead, they're pale, they're listless, they're still malevolent white folks uh, who attack a home that has integration happening inside of it. <laughs> in Dawn of the Dead... <laughs> Oh, uh, okay, carry on. <laughs> yes, they are. I just I had to have I had to have a moment for that. Okay. <laughs> In Dawn of the Dead, they're listless, multi-hued malevolent people, uh, but who are also fairly incompetent zombies endangering the mall dwellers by virtue of their crushingly overwhelming numbers. They want to consume specifically. Okay. In in Day of the Dead, many more of them retain their old memories and several are bitten soldiers. And they also do a lot more attacking just for the sake of eating. So it's very much a malevolence, but our heroes still escape from the threat. Because these are all times. But in Land of the Dead, they're led by a black man, who is, in many ways, an inverted recall back to the original movie. But there's more. He's also working class, which is interesting, because when we first meet Ben, he's got a tire iron. He's able to learn. He's compassionate, actually putting a couple zombies out of their misery on purpose. 
He's also directed and a leader, and essentially he's a revolutionary. He's not malevolent per se. That's what Dennis Hopper is. And also in this movie, Dennis Hopper's character is. Um, but... <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, <laughs> he might be a very nice man. He, you know, he could be a wonderful individual. He might he have just been. Yeah, plays that really convincing. Yes, but the rich are malevolent, and also in this movie they are. Um, the zombies are no longer a force for destruction. <laughs> There's a knee-jerk part of me that wants to argue with you, but it's vestigial that <laughs> I can't yeah. anymore. Someday that'll be my jackboot. Um, <laughs> I better shine it up by licking it. Uh, so the zombies are no longer a force of destruction. They're agents of change against a hyper-corrupt system that has risen in the ashes of the old world. Romero's zombies, whether he means them to be or not, have evolved into a revolutionary Marxist force. It is no longer easily fooled by the tricks or the fireworks of the rich and powerful, and it's no longer incapable of using their tools to affect change. They break into the mall using a jackhammer. Workers of the world unite. Mm. They're no longer incapable of anything besides simple parallel playing. Now they can cooperate. They can do so to, to great effect and to sweeping justice for themselves. They topple the rich in their fort, something that the poor humans were unable to do because these poor humans were so distracted with their bourgeois concerns of money and the like, and avarice. Also, the fact that the bourgeois humans, you know, feel pain and get tired. But and, then they inflict it know. on each other, too. Like, for entertainment. All right, fine. They do. All right. And I you're not wrong. I think flip. Yeah, like, no, like, but the, you know. I, I think there's something to that, though. Like, because no, we... Yeah, yeah. Because there's... Ultimately, there's, there's empathic mobility for humans... There's a race to the bottom. And I okay. think economically, because there's mobility for the people at our level, there's a desire to step on other people to keep up. Whereas, and it's out of fear. Whereas when you're at the bottom rung, the hell do you have to lose? True. Yeah. Now, by the way, in 2005, there was a first person shooter game came out that was called Land of the Dead Road to Fiddler's Green. Um, and it was supposed to be a prequel to the movie in video game form. And it was wildly panned, but it, it, it is a zombie first-person shooter that came out in 2005. Really? Yep. Okay. Now, by this time, Supernatural is on the air. Yes. Zombie That's movies true. are big, but so are Supernatural zombie movies with a reversible curse of some sort. Or at least a way to damage zombies, often involving the use of salt. Mortuary comes to mind. Also, the sci-fi channel starts making use of this genre, which was a bit of a problem as regarded quality. TV can only give you so much within this genre, but it can give you a lot of quantity. Um, and when, true. when you get a glut in the market like this, you get a lot of genre bending as well. Uh, the movie The Stink of Flesh came out in 2005. <laughs> That's a title. It's a sexploitation zombie flick. Of course it is. After Sundown was a zombie western in 2006. Automaton okay. tran Transfusion is a kind of a Red Dawn meets Zombies meets Jacob's Ladder in the same year. 
City of Rot. That's a mashup. Yeah. <laughs> City of Rot was a South Park style animation zombie film. Dorm of the Dead came out in 2007. <laughs> in 2007, 28 Weeks Later came out which was a sequel to 28 Days Later, which was not a sequel right. to the Sandra Bullock f- film 28 Days. Um, yeah, very those were different. different. Yeah, as it very turns out. wildly different. You can yes. imagine the surprise of my mother-in-law. <laughs> I'm joking. Okay. I, I didn't take her to okay. a movie. All right, okay. okay. <laughs> I was going to say, wait, what? All right. Well, I, I love making that joke about the movie Us. Turns out not a sequel to This Is Us. Um, yes, turns out. <laughs> uh, and since the original movie of 28 Days Later was such a hit, this one had a much bigger budget and had much more profits. As a movie, it's really good, but it really doesn't do anything differently than the sequels expected to. There's no new direction, no new statement being made, so I can kind of just plow through that one. Um, this particular one is made after multiple attacks uh, had happened throughout the Western world, um, however. So 28 uh, weeks later, it comes out after the July 7th public transit bombings in 2005. Oh, right. But honestly, there doesn't seem to be that much of a connection to that national trauma and this movie, though. Uh, the only thing that I found of remote interest was the focus on the fact that our main character was infected by his wife, whom he'd abandoned to earlier to an, a zombie attack, who was an asymptomatic carrier of the rage virus. Uh, what's fun about this particular wrinkle is that despite all the precautions, despite all the efforts to isolate the island from the continent, asymptomatic carriers brought the virus to the continent as well. Kind of prescient, ain't it? Ain't it? This, of course, opens up the door for an as-yet-unfulfilled sequel. Um, in 2007... Uh, American Zombie came out. Uh, that is a Spinal Tap style documentary. <laughs> so, uh, okay, I might I might have to find that one and watch it because oh my god. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's good stuff. Uh, and and I'll end <laughs> I'll end with Romero stepping back in. I like to use him as bookmarks. Um, He steps back into the zombie sphere with Diary of the Dead. Uh, It's more of a standalone in the world that he's created. Uh, It's a found video style, so think Blair Witch Project. Um, And it serves as a bit of a prequel, or at least contemporaneous, with Night of the Living Dead. Uh, Although it's still a modern movie, so it's, it's, it's contemporaneous with the remake in many ways. Because there are cell phones, there is the internet. Um... And he was trying to do better what Blair Witch had tried to do a decade earlier. Um, so you've got these students yeah, who start out. The, the, found, the, the found, I was going to say yeah. the found footage element is. Yes. Yeah. An interesting thing for him to be playing with mm-hmm. at that point. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's justified in universe as these are film students, right? Which in many ways he's writing about himself now. Um, the students start out filming a horror film, but, uh, before they find themselves caught up in a world where the horror has become real. And as usual, Romero is absolutely holding up a mirror to ourselves, right? The xenophobia that comes about as a result of the convulsion of fear from 9-11 definitely is featured, uh, as an aspect of the first few minutes of this film. Uh, an immigrant, uh, shot and killed his wife and child and then himself, which is being reported on the media. He loves using 
uh, like TV or radio to kind of move the exposition along. Um, speaking of which, this movie heavily involves the media, making them a chased target of the zombie. Uh, this is a pretty obvious nod toward the continued war on media waged by conservative pundits and warmongers during the Bush presidency. As the movie itself is a collection of found footage by film students in Pittsburgh in the late 1960s, all of whom are white, he is also able to poke at white male vanity and fragility. Uh, The women are usually much more competent than the men in this movie, and they're also much more willing to do more than just film what's happening. The only black people that you see in this film come across, uh, are are people that they come across um, who've decided to hunker down and keep each other safe. So Mm. there's a community of black folks who are like, okay, this is what we got to do. Probably because they've had like generations of trauma uh, inflicted by you know white violence, so mm-hmm. there's some like, hey, here's how to stay safe. But there's no macho heroics in this group. There's no vanity in this group. Uh, but they do comment that since the white folks have left, they finally have the ability to do right for their own people and have full agency over that choice. So, okay, so here's the deal. Romero mm-hmm. is now like, you know what? I have all these anvils. I have collected these anvils over many decades of making these movies. And now, you know what? Fuck all y'all. I'm going to drop them. You know what my next sentence is? I'm going to drop all of them. Anvil, meet gravity. <laughs> But it's not just one. Yeah. It's <laughs> no, true. From yeah. what you just said. Yeah. Like, no, no, yeah. no. I'm sorry. Look upon the field where I grow my anvils and note <laughs> that it is fecund. And, yeah. and now I'm going to drop them all on your fucking head. And and these I'm folks. Yeah, you're not wrong. These these folks, this community of, of black <laughs> folks who finally have their own homestead, they don't take advantage of the young college students despite being far better armed than them. Now, recall that Ben gets killed by a white militia. Mm-hmm. This this is not Romero being sneaky, guns. but he's certainly nope. being effective um, because when they run across the National Guard, the National Guard mug them. <laughs> because the National Guard are almost all or all yeah, white guys. Almost all, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So Romero is also happy to use the film within a wow. film trope against itself too. Uh when the actor who had been playing the monster in the student movie actually turns into a zombie, he stalks the very actress who had played his victim. And honestly, he's calling himself out a bit too. He equates the video camera with the gun as a tool of violence. Uh, After one of the men kills a few zombies, he returns the gun to another man, saying that it's just, quote, too easy to use the gun. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm just, okay. I I Uh have to, this this is kind of of breaking breaking the media analysis of this. But speaking as a gamer, Mm -hmm. you're never going to meet a tabletop gamer who's going to do anything that stupid. (laughs) Yeah. Like, like, no, no, no. If it's easy, 
Keep it as easy as you can get it. We know what it means when you have a 5% chance of failure. Right. We all roll a one occasionally. Right. No, 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 no. No, no. The difference between a 5% chance of failure and a 10% fucking deal. Yeah. It's not too easy. No, hold on to the fucking gun. (laughs) If you're saying it's too easy, you're being arrogant and you're going to fucking die. Well, shortly thereafter, the female protagonist, Deborah, returns the video camera she has been using to her documentation-obsessed boyfriend, Jason, with the same remark that the camera is too easy to use. In other words, we should experience this. Uh, They continue to argue about the appropriate actions to take throughout the film. According to Deborah, Jason's become too obsessed with filming everything and uploading it onto the net, numbing him to the actual human horror of what's happening. Jason claims that since the government and commercial media are systematically lying about what's going on, they have to get the truth out, man. Um, And this means filming what's happening and uploading the material. And they're actually both right. I genuinely don't know which one of them sounds more like a white person. Yeah. Like, like there is, there, there are layers of privilege involved in both of those arguments. Yeah. And notice what they're not doing. They're not working to keep each other safe. They're Mm. arguing about the media that they're going to use to talk about this. Yeah. There's another group who is just like, mind your business. (laughs) (laughs) Let's stay safe. <laughs> Everybody stick together. Yep. Keep your keep your eyes pointed outward. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I find it interesting that you and I are both latching onto this critique as a couple of guys um, mm-hmm. recording a podcast in the middle of a worldwide pandemic. Yeah, that was not lost on me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Which, so anyway. which is, yeah, <laughs> spread yeah, very easily by contact. Um, yeah. So, you know, they're both right. And at the end of the film, J- after Jason's killed, Deborah edits and uploads his documentary despite her earlier criticisms. So the real question is, does it actually matter? The zombies are everywhere. Cell phones don't work, but the Internet still does. I don't know why. Um, when faced with the end of the world, there really is nothing you can do except to bear witness to it in some form. Which in this movie is I'm sure uploading you a video because that, that sounds very existentialist. It does, it does. But then again, is there anyone left to watch it? Well, does that matter though? Yeah, because from an existentialist yes. point of view. Well, okay. okay, from an existentialist point of view, no. But from a practical point of view, what's the goddamn point of being a witness <laughs> if there's no audience? There's because no then audience your a witness is a mute witness. Yeah. So by 2008, broadband internet was everywhere. iPhones and their cameras were growing in ubiquity. YouTube was three years old and growing. Facebook was available to the public for two years by this point. MySpace was still ascendant. But they were were still new. Yes. They were still shiny and new. Yes. And the the ramifications of social media had not become clear yet. Right. But we are starting to see things, right? Because MySpace was on its way up and out. Social media and both the democratization of media and the fracturing of the common narrative were starting to really show. Obama was running for president using media in a way that nobody ever had before. That's true. In the Living Dead series, zombies were something like the return of the repressed come to claim vengeance in some way or another. 
They represent they represent the crumbling of the structure of the family, the commodity of fet, uh, of fetishism, um, military scientific complex, the socioeconomic class system. But in all of these films, in all of the Living Dead films, the zombies represented those things. They were an existential threat standing in for that specific aspect. In Diary of the Dead, all of these social structures are still in place since it's set before the apocalypse. But instead of representing these structures, zombies are now images to be recorded, but images that directly constitute the real and existential threat that they are as they replicate and proliferate everywhere. And the way to let folks know about the threat is to show them the images, not the reality. Okay, so this is in... 2008 what i find interesting is what you're describing is memes yeah and what is it that is literally mimetic yeah and what is that if not the fracturing of the national narrative the fracturing yeah. of the shared experience even though everybody shares yeah. memes it's yeah. memes to trigger the other side kind of thing everyone's a and, content creator too yeah and and I think the timing is really remarkable mm-hmm. that this is 08 and the iPhone, the first real, you know, modern smartphone mm-hmm. was in 2007. Yes. And that's, that's, so that's still new mm-hmm. in the public, public consciousness. And that is in our, uh, technophilic, uh, you know, new wave loving mm-hmm. kind of kind of psychology as a society um that's the new normal yeah but we don't know what the new normal means yet right and so you know we're 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 on the very very beginning of everybody has a camera in their pocket everybody has mm-hmm. a connection to the internet in their pocket yeah which means we can connect more than we ever have and be disconnected more than we ever were. Yeah. We we can be we can be totally connected 100% all the time mm-hmm. and yet separated by a screen. Yeah, because it's a mediated worldview. Yeah. And since everything in the world is at our fingertips as an image and spreads virally and gains traction by way of contagion, in the same way that zombies proliferate and communicate with their own condition to others, mm-hmm. screens thus are, in fact, the only tools we have left to cope with the world and its realities. It used to be that everyone watched images on a television together and they only watched the three channels. And it was very tightly regulated as to who got to have access to it. Now everyone owns a camera and everyone actively captures and produces images, and often to no avail. And as it turns out, you can film a murder, but that doesn't mean that the policeman will be found guilty. Mm-hmm. Now, toward the end of the movie, as if this wasn't enough anvil, anvil droppage, Romero has... <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. Fields of anvils. Right. Look upon the field where I grow my anvils and find <laughs> that it is fertile. Romero has us watch two scenes that are seemingly at odds with each other and yet entirely the same. A white upper middle class student actor has snapped. He is now living alone, but he's also not living alone because he's in his ultra rich parents fortress slash mansion out in the middle of nowhere. 
and he has preserved all of the zombified people around him, his parents, his their servants, everyone else in the house, and he objectifies them as undead sculptures planted in his swimming pool. They stand fixed to the bottom and seem, seem unable to escape. And that's how he coped. Another scene shows a white middle-aged American hunters somewhere in rural Pennsylvania having a good old time as they hunt zombies for sport. Both scenes objectified the zombies and both lost a part of their own humanity in doing so, coming one step closer to consuming uh, the very thing that was trying to consume them. And at the end of this whole podcast, I will uh, bring up this part again because Westerns. But at the end of this film, Deborah, as a narrator, wonders whether if this is what we are like, we are actually even worthy of survival. Okay. So, lots of anvils. All of them. Yeah. And really? I, I, I really just want to cover one last film, and it'll be short, okay. because in 2007, well, the, the one last film for this episode, in 2007, Flight of the Living Dead came out. Probably as a response to Snakes on a Plane. Probably. And, and that's all you that really, needs to be said. You really, you really want to qualify probably. Like, so, no. It came out as a response to Stakes on a Plane. When the whole concept for the original film is, all right, no, we're going to take an airplane, we're going to pack it full of snakes. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's it. Yep. That's, that's, yep, that's yep. the elevator pitch. We're done. Yep. All right, green light. There you go. Do the movie. Sure. You know. Yeah. So. Uh, and we're gonna. Oh, oh, sorry, sorry. Critical important, critically important part of the of the recipe. We're gonna have Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah. Say. Most I definitely. Motherfucking tired of these motherfucking snakes on this motherfucking plane. Yeah. <laughs> because that's crucial. And and that got greenlit. Yes. So, yes. As a matter of fact. This airplane is this this movie rather is really clearly uh, a response to that because how could you not? Mm-hmm. Okay, so anyway, carry on. Tell me tell me about this. Oh, there's nothing to tell. I mean, okay. I just wanted to point out that you know I I like when I find these little gems, like when uh, El Santo was in a zombie film, or when I found a zombie <laughs> sexploitation film. Like I'm gonna I'm gonna keep calling out those titles. You know, I just am. Um, but in the next episode, I'm gonna talk about I Am Legend, uh, and we'll probably finally get to one of my favorites, Dead Snow. Okay. Yeah. I am legend. Uh-huh. I'm going to throw this out here in uh-huh. the last minute or so of our of our podcast right now mm-hmm. before we get into the the next one. I am legend zombie movie or vampire movie? That's well. There went my thunder. Um yeah. Well, no, you're, well, abs- you're you're absolutely All right. right. Um All that's right. it's it's that's one of the things. Um, but, uh, I, I think I, I, I will, you know what, uh, I will, uh, I will, I will go just a little bit into it. I think it is a zombie movie. 
Um, okay. And it's it goes back to having a science explanation as well as the hope of reversal. Oh, okay. And right. I and and we never saw them actually um, vampiring. Oh, okay. In the two thousand seven one, you know. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Because I, I also, I mean, you know, yeah. I, I think in the two thousand seven one, I also, I, I immediately think of the Omega Man. Yeah, everybody does. Yeah. Which, like, anyway, we'll, we can talk about it in the next episode. I, I, yeah. I certainly didn't want to, you know, take anything away oh, from no, what you're you know, it's, do. it's, uh, yeah. there's not much to say about it though. I mean, it, it's backed. It, it, it honestly doesn't do anything to push the genre. It's back mm-hmm. to some stuff that we were already aware of. Although there is a fun little inversion in there. Um, where uh, it, it inverts the zombie trope, ultimately. They're all okay. very white, um, threatening a black man. Uh, and, and in this one, he seems to be the, the danger to them, but then it turns out he's trying to save them. So okay, there's a lot going on there. There's a lot going on there. Yeah. All right. Yeah, so, cool. Looking forward to it. Uh, yeah. All right. So that is uh, the end of this one. Uh, anything you want to glean? Because I we dropped a lot of goddamn anvils in that one, in that last part, especially oh, the geez. diary. But also, well, I, uh, I think I think the Adrian Martin stuff. I mean, there's a lot of meat on this bone. Unlike yeah, the Frenching that I experienced. <laughs> nice, nice way of bringing that back around. Thank you. Uh, brick joke. Ladies and gentlemen, um, <laughs> I I think I think the thing that strikes me, speaking of bricks, is the the way that Romero has come around to, as I've said now multiple times, and I'm going to keep going with, look upon the field where I raise my anvils and see that it is fecund and mm-hmm. rich with bricks. Um, you know, for somebody who, who started out codifying the genre kind of as a reaction to his own falling backwards into a message, mm-hmm. you know, he made the first movie and like, oh, hey, there's symbolism here. And then he made the next couple of films mm-hmm. and, and the extent to which he was, forging and then dropping anvils on people increased kind of each time. Yes. And then we get to Diary of the Dead where it's like, oh no, no, it's like, it's all anvils. It always has, like the meme of the two astronauts always has been. Yep. Like, you know, (laughs) like, and, and, and the fact that the story he told in that film and and I'm not going to give him credit for for dropping an anvil on this part mm-hmm. because I think it was too early for him to be for anybody to be aware enough of of this for it to be an anvil drop. But the fact that it retroactively becomes an anvil drop, mm-hmm. the idea of virality having yeah. a parallel in in internet culture mm-hmm. in you know, internet 2.0 after the advent of the smartphone. Right. And the explosion of YouTube. And as you said, the democratization of media. Um, and the fracturing. Like, I cannot emphasize oh, yeah. enough that on one side of the spoon, you have democratization, which is a very good thing. And on the other side of the spoon, 
you turn it over and the media has been completely fractured. And with that democratization came a a loss Balkanization. of Yeah. A which which I mean, one is really, really good and the other one's really, really dangerous. Really, really, really shitty. Yeah. So yeah. You know, and, and but but the fact that, you know, the idea of, of you know, things on the internet going viral. Mm-hmm. Um, even before the term was really a hundred percent part of the, part of the lexicon. Right. The, the fact that that's, that's kind of in the background of what he does in the yeah. film alongside the metaphor of, you know, zombieism mm-hmm. is really remarkable. You know, the, the level of, and again, he kind of falls backward retroactively into being really visionary. Yeah. You know, um, and, how many, and, how many times can a man do that before we just admit he's a visionary? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna just say, I, I think, I think he certainly qualifies as being a visionary, but I think what I, what I'm really fascinated by is the fact that he is a visionary but he's a subconscious visionary. Okay. And that and that leads me to wonder how many visionaries are subconscious visionaries. <laughs> right. Like, like that they're able to they're in touch enough with their own I don't want to say id, but but their own their own subconscious. They're they're in touch enough with the their intuition. Their intuition. There you go. Very good. They're they're intuitive enough. Mhm to be able to extrapolate something without actually seeing it. Yes. In that kind of way. And yes. That's, that's a very particular kind of genius. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's my biggest, whoa, moment out of what we've talked about nice. here nice. in this episode is, is the idea of, the intuitiveness mm-hmm. of Romero's perception yeah. of these things. Yeah. That's me. Cool. Yeah, I like it. I like it. What, do, what do you think? I I think you're you're on to something for certain there. I mean, I would point out that intuition is sometimes often well, sometimes often. Huh. Uh intuition <laughs> is developed. Yes. Um and oh. if you remember, um, or activated too, um, sure. because if you remember what he used to do coming home on the train was he would go and he would rent movies. His entire worldview seems to be aimed at looking at media. Okay. He's only ever made films, you know, I'm sure he had other, you know, side jobs and stuff like that, but films have been so important to him. I think he would get it. I think he would understand. And and because he was an outsider coming into it, he carries a different view. That's true. You know? Uh and so he and and he sticks to a specific genre. So I think that's another mark in his favor in his ability to see and forecast things that others of us can't see because we're stuck in it. Um, so yeah, I, I, I agree with you and for those additional reasons. So, uh, what you reading? 
Um, right now I'm still reading student work, uh, <laughs> cause I, I now have a whole bunch of sixth graders in my English classes and, um, I'm, I'm trying to teach them to put together a coherent non run on sentence and, um, send help <laughs> is really <laughs> kind of all I can say. Um, I, there's, there's a very strong gulf between the ones who, who have it and are ahead of the curve mm-hmm. and, and literally everybody else. Um, so that's, that's kind of what I'm, what I'm stuck reading right now. How about you? Oh, let's see. Um, I'm just reading, I'm reading a lot of plays lately. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's any books that I've read, uh, that I haven't already recommended to you. Um, nothing's coming to mind. So I'm going to say, uh, for homework, go watch dead snow. Okay. And you're welcome. So, uh, (laughs) where can people find you on the social medias? I can be found on the social medias at EH Blaylock on Twitter and EH Blaylock on Instagram and Mr. Blaylock on the Tiki Talk. And where can you be found? Uh, let's see. Go find me at Duh Harmony on Twitter and Insta. Find me every Tuesday night uh, on twitch.tv forward slash capital puns uh, where I do puns. Um, those are some pretty good places to find me. Um, yeah. Where can they find us collectively? Collectively, we can be found at Geek History Time on Twitter and uh, Geek History of Time on the internet. And the we- the uh, podcast itself, pardon me, can be found on uh, Stitcher and Spotify and the iTunes uh, uh, podcast application. Uh, and if you look us up there, uh, please take a moment to hit the subscribe button and please give us a review. Give us the five stars you know that we have earned. And yeah, if you need to shout at us about something, uh, Twitter is probably the best place to do that because then we can have a conversation about it. That's about all I got to say there. Yeah, I like it. Well, for a geek history of time, I'm Damian Harmony. And I'm Ed Blaylock. And until next time, remember to aim for the head.